Coming up, a super ending to a fantastic NFL playoff as the Rams cast their chips with a Super Bowl title, leaving the Bengals with another painful defeat in the big game. I'll analyze and break down all that took place at SoFi Stadium as well as the underwhelming 2022 Hall of Fame class and does Kyler Murray want out of Arizona? The aftermath of the blockbuster James Harden for Ben Simmons trade, a new number one in college basketball, a coach fired in Edmonton as the Oilers make a necessary change, and pitchers and catchers are scheduled to report in Arizona and Florida. No, wait a second. The latest development regarding the CBA between the players and owners of Major League Baseball Here comes another energetic, frenetic, and most definitely not pathetic ride through the sports landscape. But first, this message. What has happened to my good people? Thank you so much for passing by to listen to me wax poetic as I talk about anything and everything that's happening in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm on all available platforms. You can also go to the website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. All I want to do is increase the visibility of this podcast, so please throw me a few stars, write a review. It will go a long way into getting the word out. Even take a screenshot, send it to your friends, send it to me on social media. I'm more than happy, willing, able, and open to get your feedback on what it is that you enjoy most about the J Reels podcast. So with that being said, let's hit it. The J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December. But what really counts is let me see this in January. Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Wills Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits, and why not? Love is in the air, as well as lots of candy and flowers on this Valentine's Day. So for all the couples out there, I hope you enjoy each other's company filled with lots of smiles, hugs, kisses, etc. It doesn't matter if you're single, involved, married, or lonely. I'll be your sports cupid shooting arrows in several directions throughout all that's going on in the world of sports as this. Is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been banging with me for now 238 episodes, I welcome you guys and gals back. It is a Monday, February the 14th, in the year of our Lord, 2022. The J Reels What's the Deal segment. What's expected on this podcast is as follows. A couple of coaching changes in the NHL, but one that may make a difference out west as the Edmonton Oilers fired Dave Tippett in the middle of another tough stretch. Is this the kick in the ass that the team needed? I'll touch on what's happening on the ice later on, as well as college basketball will have a new number one at the very top with Auburn losing early in the week to Arkansas in overtime. So we'll get through the college basketball. Believe it or not, four weeks from today, we'll already have Selection Sunday in our rearview mirror, and dare I even say March Madness? You got it. But between now and then, we'll catch you up on what's happening in college basketball. Speaking of the hardwood, the trade deadline in the association did not disappoint, as there were plenty of trades, but none bigger 
than James Harden going to Philadelphia in exchange for exile point guard Ben Simmons. Who will this deal help more in the short term, maybe even in the long term for that matter? You know, I have plenty to say about this as well as what's happening in Major League Baseball. The next two days would have been all about pitchers and catchers reporting to Arizona and Florida with our sights set on the crack of the bat, the pop of the catcher's mitt, the smell of the green grass in the not-too-distant future. But you can pretty much forget about that because what we have right now is a stalemate between the players and owners. It looks like it's going to be a bitter fight to the very end. I'll get into how this is shaping up and will there be a spring training at any point over the next six weeks. All of that to chew on, including my hero in Zero of the Week, Yeah, I know. Now that we have a champion in the NFL, we transition into the first sports dead zone of the year. I'll get into more of that next week, as I'm sure a lot of you out there are still coming down, or maybe still on a high, from the final moments of last night's Super Bowl 56, in which the Shield celebrated a gigantic final month with everything that they could possibly wish for in a postseason, minus the wildcard games, because we all know those first six games were a disaster. But before I get into the actual game itself, there are a few things that I pondered here between the final gun in regulation up until this recording. And I wanted to open the podcast with before I actually dive deep into the game itself. First up, we do not have to talk anymore about the boy wonder, boy genius that is Sean McVay. Even if they don't win again. And unless they're in a situation where it's Seattle versus New England where they have a chance to ice the game or take the lead and some boneheaded play call by McVay turns the fortunes of the Rams winning another Super Bowl right down the tubes. Barring that, and I understand with this team, who knows what it's going to look like moving forward when we talk about certain players, maybe even McVay himself, as he's hinted throughout the press conferences over the course of the past week, maybe looking at wanting to raise a family, start a family, and that football coaching may not be in the cards come somewhere down the road. That's not to say that he's going to go off into the sunset. We all know that Sean McVay has become the youngest coach to win a Super Bowl as he eclipsed Mike Tomlin when he did that back in Super Bowl 43 when he was also 36, but with him turning 37 just the following month in March, McVay now holds the title as the youngest guy to ever win a Super Bowl as a head coach. But... As of right this second, we have to give him his due, and I'll get into some game situations later on, but as much as I can't stand the smile, him running up and down the sidelines when things are going perfect, and as we almost saw yesterday, him imploding in big stretches in that second half, obviously we cannot say anymore. Now I get it that with this small window that they have with these core players, you would think that Not to say they're going to be a favorite next year, but they have maybe another year, two tops, to try to see if they can either repeat or get another opportunity to win a brass ring. But that's for down the road. We'll have to wait and see how this unfolds. But as of right now, McVay is the toast of LA and pretty much the NFL as he was unable to win the Super Bowl in his first go-around in Super Bowl 53, but now he captures that brass ring And we'll certainly be riding high here over the course of the next four or five months heading into training camp. Number two, there is no more talk about Matthew Stafford. And when you think about his football life prior to the start of this season, he was in Detroit for 12 years, made it to the playoffs three times, was 0-3, 
of course, on a bunch of bad line teams. And the trade that was facilitated in late January of last year where Jared Goff goes to the Motor City and Stafford comes to Tinseltown, a lot of people thought from that point up until the start of the NFL season on whether or not Stafford, yes, does he have the talent? Absolutely. But does he have the chutzpah? Does he have the testicular fortitude to be able to take his team not only to a Super Bowl, but to win it? And pretty much what you saw throughout this whole playoff. All right, the first game against Arizona was a cakewalk. The game in Tampa, I understand a lot of the other players on offense coughed up the ball, whether you're Cam Akers or even Cooper Cup. And with the game tied late, he still was able to make a couple of big throws, including the one to Cooper Cup, which propelled them to the last second field goal to win in Tampa, to then bring it back home, to win an NFC Championship game in which he was down by 10 points heading into the fourth quarter, was able to pull his team out of the fire. And then yesterday, granted he had a couple of interceptions, granted there were moments there in that third into the fourth quarter where you kind of wondered with the team depleted on offense, especially at the key positions, and him not being able to muster any type of drives, at the biggest stage, at the biggest moment, and the biggest time of the game, he was able to not only stand, but also deliver. And Stafford, you could shut down the conversation on whether or not he is a guy that can lead a team to a Super Bowl. Yes, does he have some very key players in big positions? All out of the cornerback, all out of defensive tackle. Of course, the wide receiver position with Cooper Cup. Absolutely. But he was able to make big plays when they absolutely had to have him. And all this talk about him going to the Hall of Fame right now, can we pump the brakes, please? It's almost as if everybody gets us that prisoner of the moment. 12 years in the league, a lot of success, even though the numbers were gaudy in Detroit. But again, when it came to the postseason, a big fat donut. And now that he gets to LA and he does win four playoff games, including a Super Bowl championship, now let's start carving the bust for Matthew Stafford in Canton. No. Can we slow down here? I know he still has a few more years left. This is a big, giant case in his legacy and a big chunk of why he is deserving to maybe even be mentioned to be part of the Hall of Fame. But we just cannot bank right now that if Matthew Stafford retired, oh, it's an automatic, or he's a first ballot. Please, how many quarterbacks out there that have won a Super Bowl that are nowhere near deserving of being in the Hall of Fame? So we got to relax. But again, he was able to do the job, come up big in various spots throughout this postseason, and there you go. He is now a Super Bowl champion quarterback. And number three, just to round out the Rams scope, is no more talk about Aaron Donald. And I've been a guy that's been on his case quite a bit over the years because when you're a seven-time first-team All-Pro and a three-time Defensive Player of the Year and with that resume on the back of his football card, it is incomparable. The guy, when you look at it, belongs there as one of the all-time great Defensive Players in the league. And what you saw last night for at least the first half, you kind of wondered whether or not, doubled and triple teamed, I understand. But you had to wonder whether or not that he was going to have his fingerprints on this game at some point. Where he was going to be that game-wrecking, dominant, all-world force that he is. 
And as the third quarter played out, didn't start out well, which I'll get into in a minute. And then with the interception, they're down by seven. So the defense had to take a stand. And at the midway point of that third quarter, pretty much through the end of the game, he certainly let it be known as to how hungry he was and why he belongs as one of the all-time greats. And mind you that he did have a lot of help based on the offensive line by the Bengals. Because as we know, going into the game, considering this postseason, especially the game against Tennessee, they gave up nine sacks. And a lot of people wondered, with this game being in the trenches, on whether or not the offensive line by the Bengals was going to at least put out a decent performance to where they could slow down Aaron Donald, Leonard Floyd, and the likes of those players, Von Miller, Ernest Jones, etc., And at the game's most pivotal play on that fourth down, as he came from the right side, put pressure on Joe Burrow, where Burrow had a desperation heave. It was incomplete. And the next thing you know, he's pointing at his finger, knowing that he's a Super Bowl champion. And no more talk about Donald. Because I've gotten into various players over the course of decades. Whether your name is J.J. Watt, even a guy like Derek Thomas, where we see all his dominance and all of his greatness in the regular season, but in the postseason, it's nowhere to be found. And for quite a bit here, and I don't want to even think about Donald and that final play in the NFC Championship game where Jimmy G had to force that ball and it was turned over. That ball was deep in Niner territory. There was no way that the Niners were going to mount the comeback to even get themselves into field goal position. Because remember, I think that play was fourth in, I don't remember, 15 off the top of my head. Two weeks ago. But for that generational Hall of Fame statement. The one that when we look at the career of Aaron Donald. We could say Super Bowl 56. Yeah the first half he was nowhere to be found. But in that second half. And especially on the game's final offensive play. The man did his thing. So kudos to Aaron Donald as well. And on the other side, my heart goes out to Risa Saslow, Brian Murray, Jai Shields, the three Bengal fans in my life who I'm sure this one's going to stick to the ribs forever. This was not only a gut punch, this was a swift kick to the groin if you're a Bengal fan. And do I even need to bring up Montana the Taylor in Miami 33 years ago? Or seven years prior to that, the goal line stand by the Niners. And what people are going to be talking about, if they haven't done so already, in water coolers around the southeast region of Ohio, is the holding call on Logan Wilson on third and goal, where, yes, he did have his hands on Cooper Cup. If they wanted to say it was a legal use of hands or illegal contact, it's borderline. But the refs throughout the whole game, Barely threw a flag. And for whatever the reason down the stretch, boy, it looked like week seven in the NFL. Flags littered throughout the shadow of the goal line. Opportunity after opportunity for the Rams to score. But the Logan Wilson, what could you say? I couldn't believe it when I saw it. Wilson made a great defensive deflection there. And when it was called on him for the hold, I said to myself, he probably grabbed Cooper Cup by the waist, 
you know, that typical play where the defensive back, or in this case, the linebacker is going to have his arms near the waist of the receiver. And then all of a sudden you're going to see that turn or that twist. You didn't see it. So what should have been fourth and goal ended up being first and goal. And then they got another penalty on top of that with Eli Apple with the pass interference in the end zone, which gave them the Rams another opportunity to score. But that Logan Wilson, that's it. And I understand if you're a Ram fan, like my guy, Beck the Ram fan, and congratulations to him, Chris Fitzsimmons. I know he's a longtime Ram fan, so I got to give him his due. But I get that the Ram fan or the casual NFL fan could come out and say, well, they missed a call on T. Higgins on the touchdown play, the first offensive play of the second half. Understood. But to throw a flag right there at that moment of the game, ugh. Not good. It has to be 100% egregious or obvious. And to me, when you watch it on the replay, it wasn't obvious. Again, Wilson's hands were definitely on cup. And if you wanted to call legal contact, okay. But was there a hold there? Absolutely not. Terrible call. And although the Bengals, and I'll get to a little overview on them later on, because now let's delve into the game. And the... First turning point early on where the Bengals had the ball at midfield and they went for it on fourth down. They weren't able to get a completion there, which was a little spotty only because you're giving the Rams half a field. And as it was, the Rams on that ensuing possession, they were able to punch it into the end zone, highlighted by that third and four Stafford pass at the sideline and where he went up the sideline into the red zone. And then before you know it, Odo Beckham Jr. makes a touchdown catch over Mike Hilton, 7 nothing. So away you go. I know you could have kicked or punted the ball at that point to try to change the reversal of field position to where you'd pin the Rams back. But Zach Taylor was aggressive there. He knew that he had to be aggressive knowing that this is a Super Bowl. Later on in the game, he went for fourth down, which they actually completed it. So you knew that he was going to set the tone early on for his team to be aggressive, to push the play and push it more on his offense with his very good to great offensive talent, especially at the skill positions. And at that point, it failed him. So even with the 7-0 lead and with the Bengals getting the ball back where the big play on the sideline, Jamar Chase to Jalen Ramsey, set them up in good position. They only had to settle for a field goal. And generally when you have a drive with a big play like that, especially when you get deep, into Ram territory at that point, you have to do your best to get six there. Is it a guarantee? Is it an absolute must? Can't say it is. Obviously, you got to come away with points. But anytime you get that big pass play, it's almost like in baseball, if you get a walk and then you get a guy who doubles into the gap, you got second and third and nobody out, it's like you got to get both of those runs in. If you just get a sack fly, one run in, all right, that's good, but you know you could have had a bigger inning. And to me, it's equivalent to that where they were ready to answer the bell after the touchdown by the Rams, and they came up short. Then the Rams were able to get the touchdown when you get into the second quarter. Cooper Cup, 13-3 as he gets that post to the back of the end zone. And then it made you wonder there, oh, is this going to be where the Rams start to turn it up here? But as it was... On the extra point, it was botched by the placeholder, Johnny Hecker. As he turned the ball with the laces, he didn't get the set placement to where Matt Gay couldn't kick the extra point to make it 14-3. to And that was an extra point that loomed large 
as we got deeper into the game. But then the Bengals followed that up with their touchdown, a little razzle-dazzle, some trickeration there with Joe Mixon, and I'll get to him later on. Mixon on the halfback option, throwing to T. Higgins to get it into the end zone. And then now you have a game where they kick the extra point, which would have been 14-10, but now 13-10. And then the Rams, as they're driving, right before the two-minute warning, where they could have let the play clock run out to the warning, but they decided to snap the ball. The Bengals drop eight. Stafford rolls out. He throws to the end zone. And a great interception by Jesse Bates to save the day at that point, knowing that the Rams probably could have taken a six-point lead, or if they were able to punch it into the end zone, extend their lead to two scores. But as it was, you get the interception by Bates, and Stafford throws that interception there, and then you kind of wondered whether or not, thinking back to the AFC Championship game, the stop Eli Apple with Tyree Kill to where they didn't score at 21-10, and then now you had a situation where Bates gets this interception late in the first half, and you figured that a lot of momentum was going to head the Bengals' way into a second half in which we know that they've been more of a second half team in this postseason. As it was after the halftime, the first play out, 75 yards from Joe Burrow to T. Higgins. As you saw on the play, Higgins did pull the face mask of Jalen Ramsey. And Ramsey did not have a good game, by the way. But Ramsey, to me, he started to get off balance even as he looked like he was turning to see if he could play the ball. But... Higgins did have the pull of the face mask and even with Ramsey's momentum kind of flailing, looked like he was trying to dog paddle in the middle of the ocean but Higgins did influence the play to where a flag was not called, big surprise Higgins goes into the end zone, Bengals take a 17-13 lead and it has everybody wondering where was the flag there now, next possession Stafford Gets picked off as he tries to throw to one of his wide receivers. Because if you remember, early on there in the second quarter, Odell Beckham Jr. on a non-contact injury, crumples to the turf. To me, looked like an ACL, no diagnosis. But of course, sobbing tears, even sobbing when he got to the sideline, when you saw him in street clothes, not only during the game, but then obviously after the game, once the Rams were officially Super Bowl champs. But without... Beckham in the lineup, you had to wonder where was Matthew Stafford going to go? He can't go all to the Cooper Cup. And Kendall Blanton, the backup tight end, he suffered an injury to where they had to get the third string in because Tyler Higby wasn't playing. Van Jefferson didn't really have too much. He did make a few plays here, but nothing that's of any significant impact. So as he tried to get the ball to Skoronek on that play, wasn't a good throw by Stafford as Skoronek had a stretch out, deflected, intercepted, and then now you're thinking, oh, geez, all the momentum's on the Bengals' side. If the Bengals could somehow, someway punch this into the end zone and make this a 24-13 game, you'd have to wonder if the snakes in Matthew Stafford's head would start to swirl. Because Stafford would be down by 11 points, two interceptions within the span of whatever it was, dating back to the end of the first half. But the... Bengals only got a field goal out of that. So the defense saved some face. And at that point on, that's when the pressure began to mount for the Rams and their offense. Yes, they did kick a field goal, but you could see they weren't able to get anything going. Didn't matter who was out there. 
It didn't matter what Stafford tried to do. The Bengal defense didn't really get a lot of pressure. Yes, they had their moments. They got the one sack there where Stafford was twisted up there and was hobbling off the field. But the Rams were now searching for answers. And the Ram defense had to step up considering the play to T. Higgins and then obviously the interception, which they held the Bengal offense at bay there with a field goal. But then now this is where the Rams defense started to turn up the volume. You saw a lot of pressure coming in on Burrow to the point where there were five sacks in the third quarter, the most ever in a quarter in Super Bowl history. They tallied seven sacks in the game, six in the second half. And that's where, as we talked about before, with Aaron Donald and company, they really started to get after the Bengal quarterback. And then now as we get deep into the fourth quarter at 20-16, to 16, at third and nine, Burrow sees Tyler Boyd in the middle of the field to where Boyd heard footsteps. That was a typical, the ball was in his hands, but then he looked left to see who was coming at him. And drop the ball. It would have been close on whether or not he would have gotten the first down. Because of the traffic in the middle of the field. But if he would have caught the ball. Chances are at 4th and 1. They probably would have either gone for it. Or they may have gotten the first down at that juncture. And who knows how the game plays out. But as it was with that drop. Bengals had the punt. And then now it's 6.15 left to go. And as I tweeted last night. This is the game to where the boy wonder. The boy genius, Ram coach Sean McVay, had to rise to the occasion. As I mentioned throughout, the offense, especially once Odo Beckham Jr. went down, was not going to say non-existent, but they couldn't get anything going. The ground game, huh? They averaged less than two yards a rush as Cam Akers and Daryl Henderson were just smothered. Sony Michelle as well. And the Bengal defense, which... Again, not going to be confused with the great defenses of NFL pass, but they were able to hold the Rams pretty much in check. And now here was a big juncture of the game to where if they could get a stop, or dare I even say a turnover, the Bengals would be in good position to finally get their first Super Bowl victory. But as it was, the biggest offensive play of the game right there out of the gate, it was a fourth and one at the... I believe it was what, at the 34-yard line, if I'm not mistaken, to where Sean McVay had to use his best player, and he knew it. He probably had to tell the people upstairs, the offensive coordinator and everybody to say, we got to find Cooper Cup almost on every play here by hook or by crook. And as it was, a play that we hadn't seen the whole night, fourth and one, jet sweep, around the right end, first down, moves the chains. And then it was pretty much dink and dunk here. Pass here. Didn't really run the ball, but they were able to move the chains. They were able to get to the two-minute warning deep in Bengal territory. Of course, the play to Logan Wilson, which I'm sure will be forever remembered in Cincinnati. And then once they got that first down, in fact, in that series, I believe on second down, that's where Matthew Stafford missed Van Jefferson wide open in the back of the end zone. And that was one that if you were a Ram fan, you were probably thinking, oh, geez, there was our shot, and now we blew it. Then came the third down, and then pretty much the rest is history. I talked about the Eli Apple pass interference on Cup. So I made it first and goal at the one, and then boom, touchdown with about a minute 35 to go. And even with two timeouts and the Bengals having the ball, 
All he needed was a field goal to tie. I figured this was the legend of Joe Burrow right here. That if he can march his team down the field to put themselves in field goal position to tie the game, to get it into overtime, it would have been indicative of this NFL postseason pretty much from the divisional round on. And they were able to get a couple of first downs. They had their moments where they ran the ball in the second half because they knew that they had to keep that Ram defense and especially to keep them honest in that regard. And here is where the mystery begins. And I woke up this morning. I even went online to the Cincinnati Inquirer to find out where in the hell was Joe Mixon on that final series. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I got to go back and check the play-by-play. And let me see if I can do so right now as I talk to you. Mixon, I believe, on the first down actually had a big carry for about nine yards. And whether or not he suffered an injury at that point, and I get it, it's late in the game, the broadcasters, everybody is just focused in on whether or not the Bengals can get themselves in field goal position. And unless Mixon crumbled to the ground and it was obvious that he was in pain and that there was no way that he was going to come back in the game, we didn't know that. If he was hobbled, if he was injured, if it was a situation where we knew that he wasn't going to come back in the game, we could actually see that. But... I don't know what happened. And it's not as if I was watching a different game, people. But as I bring up this final play-by-play series here for the Bengals, the first down, you had that play to Jamar Chase over there in the left flat where he zoomed past Jalen Ramsey for 17 yards, which was a big game to start. And you figured right then and there, like, ooh, once you get that positive play, especially when it results in a first down, that's always a great sign if you're a team that's looking to try to get the Equalizer, in this case, the field goal to tie the game. Then the next play was the pass to Tyler Boyd, nine yards, which set up a second and one at the Ram 49. The third play, excuse me, the second and one was a long pass that he was looking for Jamar, chased down the sideline, but he broke the route. And I understand, that's something that you're going to risk. You figure second and one, why not take a shot there? And they did, but certainly Chase was nowhere in the vicinity of that pass. The third down, the draw to Perrine, which made no sense because I thought to myself, where's Joe Mixon? And again, it's not as if the broadcasters, Al Michaels, Chris Collinsworth, or Michelle Tafoya, or anybody had said, Mixon's out of the game. Unless, I don't know, I was in the bathroom and came, I don't know. What did I miss? And then, of course, the fourth and one where the pressure from the left side, Burrow had to desperately heave a pass. I think in the direction of T. Higgins, incomplete, ball game over, and the Rams are your Super Bowl champions. And like I mentioned earlier, you wonder about the status of the head coach, whether or not this is it for him. I doubt it. I know he intimated that he would like to raise a family, and he knows that if he's going to continue to be the coach of this team, it's going to take all of his time away. And he wants to be there. Who knows what the timetable is. I'm sure it's not like he's going to start a family tomorrow. Although he had reason to celebrate. And who knows how the... Remember, game is in LA. So it's not as if they had to go back to the hotel. They went home and who knows what happened after that. Not my business, of course. But between that and even a one Aaron Donald. Where there's also been talk about him possibly retiring at the age of 30. Knowing that he's accomplished... First team all pro status seven years in a row. 
We know about the hardware that he received, but then now, culminating with a Super Bowl victory, who knows? He may call it quits. It's quite possible. He was asked that last night. He said he was in the moment. He's not thinking about that. Understandably and rightfully so. And the home field advantage, so to speak, of course you heard a lot of Ram fans in the house, but there were a lot of people there cheering for the Bengals. It wasn't really distinct coming through the speakers where it was like, wow, this is overwhelming to the Rams where obviously the game was in their building, but I didn't look at that too much as a home field advantage there. To me, there were just as many people cheering for the Bengals as it was for the Rams. And I know when you watch all the stars there, and granted, it's LA. I mean, what did you expect? When you see Jay-Z and LeBron and Matt Damon and J-Lo and Ben Affleck and Charlize Theron, I mean, go down the list. I mean, it's endless. And of course, a lot of these celebrities couldn't tell you who Jalen Ramsey was if he fell on him. Or if they know who Cam Akers is. Or dare I even say, can they even mention one defensive player on the Cincinnati Bengals? Of course not. But we understand. That's the pomp and circumstance of a Super Bowl that's taking place in Tinseltown. So that's what you have there. And an NFL season where I know the powers that be, the Roger Goodells of the world, they were swimming in cash and dancing in their Dom Perignon and just guzzling every alcoholic beverage known to man on a very successful three final rounds of this postseason. And now we head into our sports dead zone. Granted there's some NBA, granted that there's, of course, the college basketball, hockey, and who knows what baseball, which we'll get to, but... There's your Super Bowl 56. And I'm not going to get into the early favorites for next year. You see the Chiefs and the Bills are the top two teams that could possibly make it to a Super Bowl. Ah, please. Can we, can we just exhale here before we even think about the next NFL season? So there's that. A couple other things about the whole scope of Super Bowl. The halftime show, to me, wasn't bad. And I come from that era, Dr. Dre, never really a big Snoop fan when it comes to his music. I'm more Dr. Dre NWA than he was even in his solo projects or a lot of the stuff he did afterwards, whether with Eminem or 50 Cent or whatever. But to me, that halftime, I did like Kendrick Lamar's performance and Mary J's Mary J. But other than that, nothing really to get crazy about. I know on social media, everybody's talking about, oh my God, the greatest Super Bowl halftime of all time. Uh, Please, did you not see Prince's Virtuoso performance in the rain, South Florida, 2007. Go look that up on YouTube and get back to me when you watch it. It was epic to say the least, and to me, number one. And even the Michael Jackson one where everybody's been talking about, watch that again. First off, Michael Jackson is lip syncing, and I know this is sacrilege to even go there with the the King of Pop. But Michael did not play a lot of his hits. He closed out singing about the children, which, okay, Michael wants to do that, no problem. But it was anything less than stellar when it comes to Michael Jackson as far as that Super Bowl halftime was. And it had been so long since I watched it. I watched that, the Beyonce one, Coldplay, this, the night prior to the Super Bowl. Nothing beats Prince. Zero. And are you going to get riled up either way with Eminem taking a knee there? I'm not. In fact, when I saw him do it, the first thing I thought of wasn't, oh my God, look what he's doing. Oh wow, Colin, I didn't even think that. So I'm taking knees, head down. All right, fine. 
But for those out there that want to go crazy either way, God bless you guys. Not this guy. But the Super Bowl halftime again. Was it one for the ages, one for the record books? I think not. It was good. I'll give it that, but besides that, nah. And 50 Cent, I know he was there. I was surprised. And I know he flames on everybody on social media and things of that nature. Well, I know a lot of the retort was 50 Cent looking like a dollar. And he did. He looked a little swole there. Not swollen as far as him being brolic. So I'll just leave it at that. As far as the commercials, the two that stick out of my head were the, I think it was the Ford commercial with the Joneses where you saw Tommy Lee Jones, Leslie Jones, and I forgot even the third Jones was. And then later on, you saw one of the Jonas Brothers come in. I thought that was pretty clever. I actually liked that. And you hear the soundtrack of the commercial, Tom Jones. The third Jones, I forgot. My apologies. But between that one, for nostalgic purposes, and I'm not a big Sopranos fan, but when you saw Jamie Lynn Sigler driving another car commercial into Jersey, all the exteriors of the bridge and everything that Jersey had to offer, especially with the iconic TV show, The Sopranos. I actually liked that. I thought that was pretty good. Even the Michelob light commercials or the ultra commercials in the bowling alley with Peyton Manning, Jimmy Butler, and Serena Williams. I thought that I liked that. Steve Buscemi, the actor, or Steve Buscemi, excuse me. But besides that, and I think there was another Peacock commercial that just aired. I get it. Peacock is NBC, thousand percent. But you do not need to jam Peacock down our throats. It gets to a point that they jam it down your throat so much that you don't even want to bother subscribing or downloading the app. Hey, give me a break. Again, in conjunction with the network, understood. I understand that they're going to plug it until your eyes bleed. But geez, enough. Unbelievable. Peacock, 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 Peacock. Yeah, watch this, watch that. Lord of the Rings. Oh, that Lord of the Rings is prime. Ah, it's just too much. So that's the whole Super Bowl experience. I want to get to some other NFL news and notes before I continue. And the shield, as I like to call it, it never seems to get out of its own way. It doesn't matter what happens off the field, and I get it, it's all off the field, not on. But when you look at Alvin Kamara last week in Vegas, part of that mess where he beat up a guy with some other people, I guess, part of his clique or part of his... Camp, whatever you want to call it, entourage, etc. And then Adrian Peterson had to be arrested in an LA airport because he was allegedly part of a domestic dispute at home with his wife. I mean, geez. The NFL, they can't get out of their own way with this. But it doesn't matter because people will always watch. If this was the NBA, forget about it. There'll be legions of fans that, oh, this is a disgrace. How could these players do that? No, NFL, bulletproof. And I don't want to pick on Kamara and Peterson, but we've seen this throughout. Henry Ruggs, three Raiders, the two other Raiders, the cornerback there with Damon Arnett, another guy with... Uh, it's just nonstop with these players. And of course, you could say Jay Reels with his 52 players on a team. It's not the NBA with 15 players, Major League Baseball, NHL. But geez, why can't they conduct themselves in a at least in a civil manner here? And I get it. I'm not the morality police by any stretch, people. And I'm not trying to say that, hey... You know, I'm Mr. Prim and Proper, but come on. All these reports, left and right, whether true or untrue, geez. But the NFL trudges on. 
they keep on keep keeping on and as you saw last night I'm sure they had a hundred and some odd million watch and away we go but enough of that and I owe a big apology I'm going to say this right off the bat to these former players Tony Baselli, Sam Mills may he rest in peace Leroy Butler Bryant Young Cliff Branch I'll put you aside even Dick Vermeil. This is your 2022 Hall of Fame class that will be enshrined in Canton come August later this summer. This was just an abomination of a class. And I'm sorry. I understand you had guys that were on the ballot for the first time. Off the top of my head, Andre Johnson was one. And I get you had Jared Allen and Torrey Holt was on there. And I get there's been a bunch of receivers that are going to go in, especially over the last 20 years with the way football has evolved into a passing league. But let me just break down some of this. If any of the guys that I mentioned, if there's one person that deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, I'll give it to Tony Baselli. Granted, his career was short, but he did have three first-team All-Pros in the seven years that he played. Five Pro Bowls, which to me, that doesn't matter. I get it, Pro Bowls, they look nice on the resume, but it's about All-Pros. And if almost half of the time you're in the league, you were three times All-Pro, then you know what? I'll give it to you. 90s all-decade team for whatever that's worth. Sam Mills. We all know, spark plug of the Dome Patrol, those New Orleans Saints teams in the early 90s with Pat Swilling, Vaughn Johnson. Those guys there were at 5'9", playing in the middle, along with Ricky Jackson. We know that he was an indomitable spirit on that team, as well as being the heart and soul of that 96 team that went to the NFC Championship game against... Green Bay, how much of a influence, how much of a guy that was just a leader among men being a part of that franchise in the second year of existence and how much that he played a part in a gigantic role on that team. But when you're a first team All-Pro one time in your career, and that was that 96 season, two second teams, all right, five Pro Bowls, we understand he played in the USFL, etc. No decade teams, he is not a Hall of Famer. Not. Same goes for Leroy Butler, and he has four first-team All-Pros under his belt. But when you look at dominance, when you look at all-time, and I get that the All-Pros, if you're at least three, I would like to say at least five. If you get the five All-Pros and above, then you're, you should be in. But for Leroy Butler, who played, I believe, 12 years, and was eligible in his 16th year to get into the Hall of Fame. If you had to wait that long and you go in along the likes of Sam Mills and Tony Baselli and then Butler, who, what, he was the one that started the Lambo Leap? Uh, he's not a Hall of Famer. Not my eyes. I get it, all-decade team. and uh, No. Nah. And then Bryant Young, who I even said last week, had his moments in the Niners where he was dominant. But I didn't realize that he only had one first-team All-Pro and three second teams. But it's all about the first-team All-Pros and All-Decade, etc. But in his 10th year of eligibility, he makes it into the Hall of Fame. But Bryant Young, and I understand I can't probably bring up this name because of what he's done in his post-career and currently where he's at in his life. And that's a one Dana Stubblefield. But to me, Stubblefield is more of a Hall of Famer than... Brian Young is. And we know Stubblefield's probably not even going to be sniffed anywhere near the Hall of Fame. But for Brian Young, one first-team All-Pro, and I was surprised. I thought he had multiple 
all pros, but this is as weak of a class as you could possibly get. And even Dick Vermeil. And yes, he was a part of that Ram team that won the Super Bowl in 99 when Kurt Warner came out of nowhere and Vermeil finally got that Super Bowl championship after having an opportunity with the Eagles early on and then the burnout and then coming back, etc. But Dick Vermeil, a guy who is winning percentage is about 520. And yes, wins a Super Bowl, but how is this guy in the Hall of Fame? I get there were probably some veterans and somebody that probably thought that he was able to get in the Hall of Fame, but I mean, that's a... I don't want to say it's a joke. I don't want to disparage Vermeil and what he did in the league to that degree, but come on. You're putting people in the Hall of Fame, and I'm going to round it out with this. Hall of Fame is for the great. Not the good. Not the very good. The great. That when you hear a player's name, it's automatic. Aaron Donald, Hall of Fame. Obviously Tom Brady, Hall of Fame. He's not there yet, but he's going to get there. Larry Fitzgerald, Hall of Fame. Guys that when you just say their name, you don't even have to think for a second on whether or not they're Hall of Famer. This class here, oof, brutal. Coaching, Dennis Allen, he of the 8-28 head coaching record many moons ago with the Raiders, is now the head coach of the Saints. He was the defensive coordinator there, and now he gets the head coaching job. And we all know the controversy about the Rooney Rule and about minorities being hired. And here's a guy that was 8-28 who is now one of the 32 head coaches in the National Football League. And then, I guess... To throw a bone, and even to his surprise, Lovey Smith is now the coach of the Houston Texans. I believe he served as a special assistant, but what happened there, I don't know. And Lovey Smith, based on some of the things that I read, was even shocked that he got the position. So what does that say about some of these practices that are going on in these organizations when it comes to hiring head coaches? And one last thing, I'm not going to get to the awards, Aaron Rodgers and T.J. Watt, et cetera, down the list. Uh, Nobody cares about that right now. But as far as Kyler Murray and what we read here over the weekend, I know it traces back to last week where he unfollowed on his social media accounts the Arizona Cardinals. So, of course, right away, that's going to raise an eyebrow to the NFL Twitter and the NFL social media circle where, uh uh-oh, what's going on here for him to drop the Cardinals and not follow them? Well, based on some reports yesterday, it seems that there's some acrimony in the desert between the former number one overall and the organization. Not only just, I guess, the higher-ups. I don't know if that means the coach in the one Cliff Kingsbury. I don't know if that means the GM or even ownership, but even the teammates. Some of his teammates have come out and said that the man lacks leadership and that he's immature. But even though the plan is for him to stay in the desert, Because this will be, what, his fourth year upcoming, I believe, in the league. So I believe he has, what, another year, two years tops before he gets that big payday. And the reason why Kyler Murray, I guess, has become disgruntled is because he felt as if the team hung him out to dry in that playoff game against the L.A. Rams there about a month ago. Uh, Kyler, you got to come with a better excuse than that. I mean, all right, I understand it was an embarrassing loss. It was one where he was awful in the game. But if you're going to pin it on your organization or pin it on teammates or whatever, look in the mirror first. 
So who knows how that saga is going to unfold between now and let's say the draft. So the NFL news cycle, I'm sure it's going to pump up here. And remember with the Super Bowl ending yesterday, the new season for the NFL is about five weeks away to where free agency and you're going to hear a lot of cuts and who knows what rumors are going to start popping or surfacing as we lead not only into the start of the new NFL year, but of course into April and obviously the NFL draft. So that'll do it for the NFL. Let's turn our attention to the fall and winter sports and I'm going to start us off with the NBA because usually trade deadlines, you'll have some movement, you'll have some moments, you'll have some scenarios where players will be traded and there may be some surprises and a lot of the talk a week ago today was whether or not James Harden was going to be traded from the Brooklyn Nets, possibly to the Sixers for Ben Simmons because it did match up the contracts. It was just a matter of what Philadelphia was going to give up more so after Simmons to Brooklyn than it was about maybe just a one-for-one between the Beard and the exiled point guard from Australia. As I discussed last week, where Steve Nash... And the higher-ups of the Nets refuted a lot of reports on whether or not Harden was going to be traded. They said, no way, we're not looking to move him, etc. But then later in the week, in fact, right before the deadline, Harden had approached the hierarchy to say that, yes, he would like a trade to Philadelphia, but wanted to keep it on the low because he didn't want to have to have to deal with any of the backlash that he would get from the public by requesting his ouster in Brooklyn. And if that's true, it just goes to show you, if you're a Net fan, good riddance to James Harden. And I've killed him over the years on my podcast. We know the offensive player that he is. And it's not about what he's done on the court. We all know his resume. But more so than in the postseason and then even over the last 14 months, his attitude and the way that he's just weaseled his way out of Houston and here in Brooklyn, that just goes to show you, we knew he's not a winning player to begin with. But now, he is far from having a winning attitude when it comes to playing on a team, as far as that's concerned. Not saying he's not a winning person outside of the basketball court. For all I know, he's the nicest guy on the planet. But when it comes to between the white lines and in the locker room, the guy's shown that he is far from an all-world personality of a guy that you can rely on and a guy that you could count on in crunch time to pull your team out of the fire. So for Harden to be traded to Philadelphia for Ben Simmons, and in return they get Seth Curry, Andre Drummond, and two future number one picks, which was a lot to give up if you're Daryl Morey. And you got to wonder, he is not only pushing all his chips in the middle of the table, he's also got his house that he's put up as well, and maybe a couple of cars on top of that, because... This has to be championship or bust. And it's a deal that could certainly blow up in Maury's face because Harden is a free agent after this year. And we know the love of fest between Harden and Maury, it's Valentine's Day. So you know they're probably hugging it out and reconnecting probably as we speak. But we all know that with Harden being a free agent next year or this coming summer, and he's going to command a payday of about four years and $223 million at the age of 32, boy, that is a dice roll 
And that is an understatement to say the least. So if you're Maury right now, you are sweating bullets, hoping and praying that the Joel Embiid, James Harden experiment works out to the tune of not just getting to a conference final, of not just getting to an NBA final, but winning the whole damn thing. Almost similar to what the Rams did by bringing in Matthew Stafford, then later on, Von Miller and Odo Beckham Jr. And I'm not trying to compare Harden to those guys, but if you're going to bring on a guy of that magnitude who could take you over the top and combine that with Embiid, uh, 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 it is championship or bust, my guys and gals. So we shall see. But the flip side of that is the Nets. And with Harden, I believe he may be scheduled to play tomorrow against the Celtics, in which will be his first game. I guess I kind of want to take the temperature of him, not only for the short term, but also in the long term, maybe to even think about, would you be willing to resign here, even if they fizzle out in the postseason? Who knows? But the Brooklyn Nets side is Ben Simmons. What kind of shape he's in and the fit that'll be on this team. And I think this is a good trade for both teams. I think it's going to benefit the Sixers more here in the short term because Harden gets a new lease on life. Where Simmons, he gets the same, but now he has to start all over with a new organization and get himself in game shape, playing shape, etc. And even though he's not the focal point of the offense, which is great, but you know damn well he's going to have to step up the defensive side of the ball, obviously on the open court, dishing it, making sure he's a facilitator. And we know Kyrie, depending on with the status of New York and the mandates when it comes to the vaccination who knows that over time if Kyrie gets to play in home games you know he's going to handle the ball a lot you may have a scenario where Simmons is going to be off to the wing four on five on the offensive side of the ball where you usually see it the other way around and Simmons I think will be a help but is he going to be out there in crunch time we know defensively he will be but is he going to be a guy that you're going to have to put some trust in to deliver. Maybe not all the time, but there's going to be a percentage where he's going to have to attack the basket and try to make a free throw or two. It can't be all about just facilitating to KD and Kyrie and away we go. So I think in the long term, maybe it helps more for the Nets to have Simmons. They'll integrate him in slowly and not ask him to do too much especially on the offensive end maybe attack the basket because he's gonna have to take some free throws that's where his dominance could be on the offensive end other than that we don't know what he's been doing as far as a post-up game a mid-range game and certainly a three-point game but with all that being said this is a trade that's going to be more so visible come April May June than it is right now yes more so for Simmons because you haven't seen him play And the Nets go to Philadelphia in the beginning of March. So you know the response is going to be negative towards Ben Simmons. And as we all know, he's fragile between the years as it is. And that's not going to play well either here in New York. With this media and all the beat writers that are ready to pounce on every move that Simmons makes on the court. So fascinating on so many levels. Especially with those... Two principles, those two guys being the focal point of this trade. But again, we may not see the true benefits of it until we get to the spring. 
Other trades that were made, C.J. McCollum was traded from Portland to New Orleans. So who knows what that means, let's say, this upcoming offseason. Because with Damian Lillard not coming back and the Blazers looking like they're probably going to be a top-of-the-lottery food chain team, you got to wonder how much longer will it be before Damian Lillard asks for his exit. Maybe not right now because he's hurt, but as we get to the conclusion of the regular season, we know that his name is going to be thrown around a bunch of trade rumors now that his backcourt mate is in New Orleans. And New Orleans, I guess they're trying to piece together something because they had such a slow start to their season. And even though they're currently on the outside looking in, just a half game behind the Blazers, the aforementioned team, for the 10th spot in the West, but maybe having McCollum there will propel them to at least play in that tournament between the 7, 8, 9, and 10 teams. So if that's what they're trying to shoot for, God bless them. A couple other trades for reinforcements. Milwaukee brings in Serge Ibaka from the Clippers. How much he has left, I don't know. He could probably give you at least 12 to 15 solid minutes. We know the type of presence that he can be. He played on that Toronto team that won a title a few years ago, many moons ago with the Oklahoma City Thunder. So he has the experience. He knows what it's like to be on a playoff team. And by bringing him in to the defending champion, Bucks. Certainly going to help more than it will hurt. And then you had Marvin Bagley go to Sacramento as part of a four-team deal with Ibaka being a part of that trade. Sacramento also trades their prize young guard and Tyrese Halliburton to Indiana for DeMontis Sabonis, which I'm sure a lot of the Sacramento fans were probably scratching their heads wondering why did they do that. Buddy Heald goes to Indiana in that trade. But considering Bagley... Even De'Aaron Fox, Sacramento, they can't seem to get on track no matter what, no matter how high of a draft pick that they get, but Sacramento has just been ugh, awful for about a decade and a half. The other trade had Kristaps Porzingis, and how did that experiment go in Dallas between he and Luka Doncic? Obviously, it did not go well as Porzingis gets shipped to Washington, and where the Wizards send Montrez Harrell to Charlotte in a separate deal, And we talked about it last week and even weeks prior. The middling team. We know they're not going to go for the big guns out there. But a guy like Montrezl Harrell will help Charlotte. Is he going to put the team over the top? Is he going to make this team a conference final participant? No. But a guy like that will certainly bring experience. Will bring added toughness. Also bring some defense and rebounding. So that was a smart move by Michael Jordan and company to bring him on to a young Charlotte Hornet team. But going back to Porzingis, where Spencer Dinwiddie and Davis Bertans goes to Dallas, and Porzingis, once known as the Unicorn, which was coined by Kevin Durant. I mean, this guy, obviously you can't trust him, not only to stay healthy, but to perform night in and night out. And it's a shame, because a guy of that height, and although he suffered that knee injury as a Nick, hasn't seemed to get himself back on track to where he could be just an out-and-out force in this league. You'll see glimpses, you'll see flashes, but I don't think you'll ever see anything close to what we saw in that year and a half when he came into the league as a member of the Knicks. And then even the Celtics made a deal bringing back Daniel Tice. They gave up Dennis Schrader, Ennis Freedom, and Bruno Fernando in the process. 
And what Tice is going to do, I know he brings some size and familiarity, etc. But with the Celtics, and even though they played well, they've won eight in a row. And granted that they haven't beaten a slew of great teams along the way. I mean, they did beat Brooklyn last week, but nobody's on the lineup for the Nets. So let's see if the Celtics could ride some of this momentum to where they play some better teams. And let me see this go up against better quality. And then, not to say I'm going to be sold, but it's easy to beat the dregs of the league. And then, here here you are, somewhere in late March, early April, where you're maybe somewhere in the middle of the pack, but knowing that you deserve to be there, as opposed to, all right, you beat the teams in front of you, and rightfully so, but let me see you do this against the Milwaukee's of the world. Let me see you do this against the Sixers, who will play tomorrow, and that will be a litmus test for them, especially if Harden's going to be in the lineup. So that will be one that I will put all my attention to to see what the Celtics do against the Sixers. But that's it. To go through the league right now, it's the same old, same old. Not much has really changed. Phoenix still continues to ride high here, 46-10, and and they look like they're going to be the favorites to win this thing, I'm sure, after last year. Which generally, when you see teams make it to a final, whether they win or lose, they always come out of the gate a little slow, a little sluggish. Yeah, they may get their sea legs. Yeah, they may be able to get their season on track. But for whatever the reason, the Suns have been blazing pretty much from the very start, 46-10, and 10, and they look like they're going to be a team that's destined to go back to an NBA final. And we talked about Memphis and how they've done. They're now 22 games over 500. Utah's played well here out in the West. The East, we talked about the Celtics here. Even with that winning streak, they're still, if you could believe it, two games behind the Sixers for the five seed. We know about the Bulls where Zach Levine, who knows what's going to happen with this knee injury and when his return is forthcoming. That is unknown at the moment. And all we got to look at pretty much is status quo throughout when we look at both the East and West. So no teams have really taken further steps north other than maybe the Celtics. And the same for out West. And the Lakers, as we talked about, can't get out of their own way. Russell Westbrook, you kind of wonder whether or not They regret making that trade as Westbrook's trying to be the good soldier and be the good teammate, but it looks like the Lakers are going to be in for it here or the expendables as I like to call them. But boy, that is a movie that is certainly gone awry and you got to wonder. With everything that's happened in LA, especially over the last 24 hours, they're going to be ride this Ram high for as long as they can because if the Lakers don't turn it around, you can forget it. It is going to be some silence in the Staples and whatever crypto.com arena come springtime if they don't turn it around at some point. As for college basketball, last week we had Auburn lose to Arkansas, so they will lose their stranglehold on the number one team in the nation. And then Purdue, they'll also take a few steps back as they got thrashed by Michigan earlier this week. So we could see some... Changing of the guard, so to speak. You would think Gonzaga will be back to their number one spot as they were earlier this year. Auburn, who knows? Maybe they'll drop down to as far as four, where Arizona and Kentucky will probably move up to two and three. You may see Auburn four, Purdue five. uh, Followed by Houston, Duke, Kansas. I'm sure they'll also take a couple steps up, depending. But as we are now just a month away, which is unbelievable to think, to Selection Sunday, or less than that. And then, of course, March Madness will ensue. 
no surprise, college basketball is wide open. UCLA fell out of the top 10. They're now 12th based on losing three of the last four. Baylor lost a big member of their team. I can't pronounce the guy's last name. Jonathan Tachoa. Again, that's a name that's tough to pronounce and you know me with my names sometimes. So he's down with a knee injury so you won't see him. The junior, I believe he's a guard uh, for the champion Baylor Bears. But the teams that pretty much are at the top, the Dukes, the Kansas, Kentuckys, I don't know North Carolina, you don't see them. But college basketball is as wide open as it's going to be here. And I'm sure certain teams will rise to the top. It's one of those unpredictable March Madnesses where you cannot forecast who are going to be the last four teams standing when it comes to the Final Four there in early April. So we have a month between now and then to kind of get into it. And we'll see where this college basketball season goes as we're, again, four weeks from Selection Sunday. As far as the NHL goes, quickly had a couple of coaching changes. One in Montreal to where you have Martin St. Louis, the former Lightning player, who is now the head coach of the Canadiens. And we know they've had just a god-awful year. And this is coming off of a year where they had 59 points, as I like to say, in the shortened season last year. Played all their games, obviously, in the division up north with all the Canadian teams, snuck into the playoffs, God knows by how, because if you recall, they lost their last five games to end the regular season, and for what that was worth, they were able to upend the Toronto Maple Leafs, a team that was destined to go to the Cup last year. They then steamrolled their way to the Stanley Cup Final, and where they got embarrassed and steamrolled themselves in five games to the Tampa Bay Lightning. Well, as it is right now, they are in the bottom of the NHL to where they had to change coaches. So the only reason why I bring that up because this is a team that was in a cup final last year and here they are just scratching and clawing to any type of respectability considering the achievements that they had last spring into summer. And then the other coaching change was Dave Tippett, the former Hartford Whaler player going back to the 80s. This is an Edmonton Oilers team that I've talked about quite a bit and for... The start of their season and how a lot of expectation, especially with the current MVP, Connor McDavid, the face of the league, that will be, you would think, in the next year or two, although I'm sure 75% couldn't pick out of a lineup. But with the Oilers and them, although they played well as of late, but they had back-to-back games to where I believe they lost 8-1, to where they had to jettison their coach, and they bring in... Jay Woodcroft, who was the coach of their AHL team in Bakersfield, how much of an upgrade that is, I don't know. I wouldn't know Woodcroft if he fell on me. But they did win their first game, I believe, with him at the helm. And the Oilers, again, a team that a lot of people thought would maybe take that next step to go to a conference final, and dare I even say a Stanley Cup final, like I said, prior to the start of the season. But the Oilers... You would think if this isn't the kick in the ass that they need for their team, then I don't know what is. They do have a trade deadline come March 21st. Maybe they could try to bring in some reinforcements, veteran leadership, a guy that could put them over the top. That remains to be seen, but that's not for another five weeks. So they have a lot to chew on between now and then before they could even think about 
bringing in some personnel to bolster their chances to make a deep Stanley Cup playoff run. So we'll certainly monitor that. The other note this week was Brad Marchand. He received a six-game suspension for his actions as he hit Tristan Jarry, the goaltender of the Penguins, and then also butt-ended him with a stick in his mask as he was going off the ice. And Marshawn, we know, the guy's a fireplug. He's a guy that's built more in the mold, better player, but more in the mold of an agitator a la Matthew Barnaby, Sean Avery. And again, much better player, puts the puck in the net, more of an intangible player than those two guys. So before the Bruin fan gets on my case, oh, how can you dare you even compare these guys to Matthew Barnaby and even Sean Avery again? as far as being that agitator. Maybe he's more Ken Lindsman, but then Lindsman never fought where Marchand, he'll get into some scraps. He felt that the suspension was unnecessary. It's based on his track record, him being suspended in the past. And as fiery of a player that Marchand is, again, do I get on my soapbox to talk about if this was 20, 30 years ago where he had more tough guys in the league, would Marchand get away with stuff like this? Of course he wouldn't. But... That's neither here nor there. I'm not going to get on that soapbox because that sport was well in our distant past and it's not going to change because if you had guys that would protect the ice and even a guy like Marshan who would fight, but yes, would he go up against a guy that's 6'4", 230 and he happened to be on the ice when Marshand was able to take advantage of getting ahead of Tristan Jari? Absolutely not. So there's no reason to belabor that point because the game isn't going to change that's how it is and that's how it's always going to be where you're going to get players with this type of extracurricular stuff and not that they're going to get away with it but they'll get away with it to the point where there's not going to be any retribution because the game isn't just played that way the way it once was in yesteryear and then you have Nathan McKinnon who I believe is back in the lineup which is a welcome for the avalanche who have played very well here over the course of the last Several weeks, 72 points, tops in the NHL overall. They're out west, and they have a big cushion over the wild there in that division. Everything's pretty much the same with all the other divisions. Tight-knit, close, whether it's Pittsburgh now overtaking the division, one point over the Hurricanes, and a lot of these games being made up here with the Olympic break which would have been for the NHL players. But now, as we're getting out of this COVID phase and hopefully to clearer skies and greener pastures that the NHL could make up these games as we get into, or at least closer to the month of March. And to close out, as far as baseball goes, and I know the commissioner, Rob Manfred, he's got the pom-poms out. Although he did state early in the week that if the sport were to miss any games and not get the season off on time, it would be disastrous. And (laughs) no surprise there. He feels as if spring training, although it looks like it's going to be jeopardized, but it can be salvaged. They met up, the players and owners there on Saturday, where they were trying to work around a bunch of different type of, not deals, but... When it comes to the collective bargaining agreement and not only that, but also the tax proposals when it comes to them increasing as the years go on and pretty much what that is, 
is the whole luxury tax. And we know that the sport isn't going to go to a salary cap. We know that the players are going to shut that down with the quickness. But even with the owners coming up with their proposal, the players have pretty much scoffed at it to say, "Uh uh-uh, and walked out of the room. So with this more recent proposal, it doesn't address revenue sharing. It doesn't address arbitration years, which are two of the main sticking points for the union. Of course, with the arbitration, they want to be able to get less time. And I understand that the owners want to disincentivize service time, as we've seen over the years where Chris Bryant being that one guy where they bring him up in mid-April and then obviously they could buy an extra year of service time with him on the back end. Whereas if they brought him up prior to the start of the season, he's already starting his clock to his free agency. Uh, Just a giant mess. And I'm not going to continue to try to hammer home the same points that I've discussed here over the last few weeks leading up to this week, which would have been the opening of camps in Arizona and Florida. But you do have to wonder, as much as they're speaking, but minimal to no progress being made, you have to wonder whether or not spring training is going to be in jeopardy. And I get it that the players don't want to report. They figured that out. We don't need to be down there for six weeks. We don't need to take extra BP. We'll be ready even if we had half of that time, etc. And I get to a certain extent, you can understand that to the veteran player. But you have to really look at this from a broad scope. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. If a deal isn't in place by March 1st, obviously you can forget about spring training. That could possibly and potentially jeopardize the start of the season. And when you have players like my own, Francisco Lindor and the Mets, saying that they're even willing to miss games at this point in order to come to a fair CBA. Now what that fair means, you could interpret it however you want it. But when you have a guy of that ilk You know, he's not a utility infielder or a mop-up reliever. When he said that we're willing to even miss games. And he may be in the minority when it comes to the union, but that's a big statement. To where, no, we want to make sure we get this right, and when we get it right, then we'll report. So, Rob Manfred could talk all he want about how, oh, I'm going to do whatever it takes. It's just a matter of having that one discussion which could turn things around and I'm paraphrasing. Let me see if I can pull up that quote because when I read that, I actually laughed at it. And right, is there some truth to it? Of course, but we know the history between the players and owners here, especially when it comes to baseball. And here's this quote. You're always one breakthrough away from making an agreement. Well, that breakthrough has to have about 15 bullet points and unless you're ready to cover all those bullet points and agree, then there's your agreement. And I just talked about the two sticking points that the players have against the owners and you know the owners aren't going to concede or say, all right, you got it. They're not going to do that. And then the owners, as we all know, even if the players are willing to miss out on games, the owners are going to get hurt more because they're not going to have any gate even if they miss the first week of the season. Yeah, they'll probably make up the games along the way or dare I even say having a 154-game season which will then turn off the fan to the point where you may never ever get them back. But that's a whole other story. The bottom line is, is that how this thing is shaping up, at least as of right now, and I don't know when they're going to reconvene to get in that room to start to even have any type of progress. 
But March 1st is two weeks from tomorrow. And I get it. You're always one discussion away or breakthrough, whatever. Nonsense. This is the Armageddon that I've talked about going back since the beginning of last baseball season. 2021. And even though they're meeting, and even though they've been talking, but it seems as if they're getting further and further apart, which obviously does not bode well for the baseball fan, and it doesn't bode well for the sport. So, unless Al Michaels has the call of all time, do you believe in miracles? Yes? Well, it looks like it's getting close to miracle time for Major League Baseball. If that miracle happens... Don't hold your breath. A couple other news and notes, sad news, especially when it comes to baseball. Gerald Williams, one-time Yankee and Met, and very close, if not best friend of Derek Jeter, passed away from cancer and actually had a long battle at the age of 55. And that came out of nowhere. All intents and purposes, he was such a great guy. Of course, Derek loved him like a brother. Took him under his wing when he came up there in the mid-90s and just ugh, 55 years old, man. That's why I got to enjoy this life and try to do it as right as you possibly can. So sad to hear that happen. Thoughts, prayers, and condolences go out to the Williams family as well as Jeremy Giambi. I understand he's more known for that play at the plate involving the aforementioned Derek Jeter in the 2001 Division Series. But sadly, he took his own life in his parents' home at the age of 47. Uh, what more can you say there? Just terrible. Terrible news on both fronts between Williams and Giambi. Thoughts, prayers, and condolences go out to, of course, Jason, his brother, former MLB player, Oakland A's, New York Yankees in particular. And uh, yeah, just two terrible tragedies that uh, have certainly been too many of those, especially when it comes to the world of sports here over the last pretty much since the start of this year. We had a ton of other guys leave us, and uh, just awful to say the least. And then Trevor Bauer is not going to face any criminal charges stemming from those incidents with that woman. Roughhousing, if you want to call it, with the uh, deal with intercourse and choking or whatever. I mean, uh. So Bauer is not going to get charged, but you figure he's going to get suspended whenever this agreement does come to pass. And who knows what Major League Baseball is going to hand down. Is it going to be an 80-game suspension? Is it going to give him the year? I would think, for starters, he's probably going to miss 80. If it's anything less than that. And again, I understand he wasn't charged, but if you want to be made example and Bauer, the arrogance and him, what he's displayed here over the last couple of years as far as his attitude goes, maybe this will be an ultimate check for him if it hasn't been so already. But we'll have to wait and see on that. But Bauer will certainly not be on the Dodgers next year and will be a free agent. And as far as what team would want to touch him, <laughs> that's beyond me. So let's get right to it, people, to close out and wrap up this latest podcast, My Hero in Zero of the Week. My Hero of the Week. And just a few weeks ago, we were honoring this guy in our NHL segment, how he was injured. He had to come back from shoulder and hip surgery and Looked like he was going to give a jolt to the Boston Bruins in net, but Tuka Rask retires after 15 years being a member of the Boston Bruins. Rask was a guy that was tremendous in net for a Bruin team, especially in those cup runs in 2013 and 2019. 
and had a long career there. Actually went back overseas after the season last year and who knows if he was going to come back to play, especially with these injuries. And although he did get a win in his first game back, I believe against the Flyers, but he had a couple of performances that were subpar after that. So he just thought it was best to step down. So he gave it a shot, gave it a try. I'm sure maybe to the Bruin fans, a little bit of a tease, but you're off to your next part of your life there, sir. So Tuka Rask, you're my hero of the week. And my zero of the week goes to Washington Commanders defensive tackle Jonathan Allen for posting a tweet that he described as one of the three people that he'd like to dine with, living or dead, was Adolf Hitler. And we all know that you can mention Adolf Hitler ate a peanut butter jelly sandwich and you may get some criticism based on that. As we know, that is one topic and one person you certainly do not want to touch, whether you say it in jest, whether you're being serious. And even though he went on to expand why, saying that he would pick his brain, he called him a military genius. Uh, It seems like the, whether you're the Washington Redskins, the Washington football team, or even now the Washington Commanders, they can't get out of their own way with this stuff. With everything surrounding the owner, Daniel Snyder obviously had the Scenario last week when they unveiled a new Diggs, the Commanders logo, where they put up the championship years, how it was the year after and not the actual football year, meaning that when the Redskins at the time, when they won Super Bowl 17, and that was in the 1982 season, but they gave the championship season as 1983, and then 87-88, and then 91-92? Come on. Use your noodle. Guys, what is happening down there in the nation's capital? Just a mess, and for Jonathan Allen to stick his thumbs in his mouth because he was tweeting this, terrible look. Obviously, he's apologized, took the tweet down, etc., but you, my guy, are my zero of the week. And that'll do it, episode 238, just about in the books. And my good people, I just want to thank you again for stopping by, taking a chance on me to listen to what it is to have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. And lastly, if I didn't mention this earlier, my super bad, Cooper Cup was your MVP of the Super Bowl. I just thought about that, and I don't think I brought that up, despite the fact that he had the touchdown in the first half and was pretty much quiet from mid-second quarter to about the fourth quarter, but I thought maybe Matthew Stafford would have got the MVP, but Cooper Cup did, but I digress. My apologies for not mentioning that earlier. But for those who stuck around and have been sticking around to follow me throughout all this time, you know that I truly appreciate Not only your participation, not only you taking a chance to hear what I have to say where we have zillions of sources and outlets out there that you could certainly entrust, but knowing that you're here with me and taking the time out of your day, not only do I appreciate it, but it's certainly not taken for granted. And if you haven't done so, like I said at the top, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. All that's going to do is increase the visibility of this podcast. Please take a screenshot, send it to me, send it on social media. Write a review, throw me a few stars. Again, I would sincerely and greatly appreciate that. If you want to hit me up with any questions, comments, criticism, or praise, you could do so at the following on social media, whether it's Instagram, J Reels, or the J Reels Podcast. On Twitter, J Reels One, just a number. On Facebook, the J Reels Podcast fan page. And of course, the old fashioned way, the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. I'll be sure to follow up with you ASAP. And lastly, if you want to contribute, to this endeavor, you could do so at www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. 
That's P as in Paul, A-T as in Tom, R-E-O-N as in Nancy. Whatever you want to put forth, again, forever indebted, grateful, thankful, the whole nine. It will go 1,000% to what it is that I do here to put forth a product that is not only clear and concise, but also one that you could certainly rely on. You could come back each and every week and hopefully twice a week. You could check out the website, info on me, past podcasts, archive shows, etc. The upkeep of the website, equipment, all of it will go to that because whether you do or do not know, this is why I love to talk about people. It's been in my blood since birth, in my DNA. And again, I wouldn't want to have it any other way to share my thoughts, opinions, analysis, break down anything and everything that goes down, whether it's on the gridiron, the ice, the hardwood, the diamond, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, octagon, boxing ring, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to South Beach to South Center to South Pacific and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby.